Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 20. As we move to the next chapter, as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and we see that Jesus' authority is challenged. Uh, Last week, we saw his authority as he exercised it in inspecting the uh, temple and the city itself. And as you're turning to Luke chapter 20, have you ever had someone come up to you while you're doing a task, while you're doing some type of event or some type of thing, and ask you, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are doing it this way, doing this, so on and so forth? They they challenge your authority. They want to know by what authority are you doing this? Or why are you acting like this? Or why do you think you're in charge? And this is what we're seeing happening as Jesus enters Jerusalem. No one likes to be challenged. And when someone asks that question, it's many times difficult to answer without uh, coming up with anger, or responding in anger, or some type of frustration. But we're going to see today how Jesus responds to when his authority is challenged. Last week, G, uh, Luke demonstrated Jesus exercising his authority as that final prophet, priest, and king that we've been speaking about over the last three, four weeks. As he wept over Jerusalem and he warns them of the upcoming judgment, as well as his inspection of the temple and cleaning it out by those who were profaning its purpose and holiness. Though entering the city of God, Jerusalem, the city of David, amid the worship of his followers, very soon, within days, Jesus will find himself surrounded by his enemies. In today's passage, Luke records Jesus' response to the religious leaders who challenged his authority. It's here on the monitor just to start us off. Again, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. Luke chapter 20, we're just going to read the first two verses to begin off this morning. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Father, I pray that you bless this time and just give us wisdom as we open up this book. We're looking at uh, scriptures that we are very familiar with, but Father, we don't want to overlook them. We want to really do the challenge and the important work of seeing how this is, is profitable for us today, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. It is, it is here for our benefit and for your glory. So I pray that you give us free reign, uh, that the Holy Spirit would have free reign as we work and, and, and do the work of looking through your scripture. In your name we pray. Amen. So when Jesus goes back to the temple, this is the next day after cleansing it out, the religious leaders were already looking for him. Now we had already saw that. They had put the word out. If you find Jesus, let us know. If you find anything that he's doing, we need to find a reason to stop him. 
They demand that he justify his actions as he's here teaching and preaching. And by whose authority are you doing these things? Now, these things that they're speaking out most likely refers to Jesus disrupting the commercial activities of the temple. This was an important time. Remember, we talk about uh, hundreds, if not millions of thousands of people are coming to the temple that, that time for Passover. They're bringing money. They're bringing all sorts of things. And so Jesus comes up and he's stopping the biggest day of the year. It's like someone going into Walmart or Target on Black Friday and kicking everyone out saying, what are you doing here at this time of the hour? You shouldn't be here. It's, it's their day of profit. And so they're not liking this. And so whose authority are you doing it? Who gave you that authority? Uh, Jesus healing in temple. Now, this is not recorded in Luke, but there is a there was a, uh, um, a healing happening uh, on that day as well. Jesus is teaching the people, meaning he's come to instruct and provide information that's intended to produce understanding. So he's he's expounding scripture, the Old Testament, helping them to understand who he is in his ministry and the kingdom of God. But he's also preaching. Luke records not only is Jesus teaching, but he's also preaching. Those are really kind of two different actions that are going on. And preaching the gospel means proclaiming or declaring, meaning to speak the good news of the kingdom. So he was more than just explaining. He was pronouncing. He was proclaiming. He was declaring, which means that you are to respond to that. Now, Jesus is most likely teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God and the need for humility, the need for repentance, the, that judgment is to come and, and to teach them about God's love and his mercy. Now it was the right and proper, uh, it was right and proper for the religious leaders to question anyone that came in the temple teaching and claiming to speak for God. There is a sense in these three. Now this time, it's usually like you hear the Pharisees or the Sadducees or it might be the scribes. But in this case, look who you have here. You have the priest, the chief priest, the scribes, the elders. All these are coming together and they're really doing a, a, a good job here of what they should be doing. It was their duty. However, they show their dishonesty, their ignorance, and their incompetency by not answering Jesus' questions, we're going to see here in a moment. In other words, Jesus is going to say, if you cannot discern scriptures, how could you even be qualified to judge Christ, to judge Jesus, or to even ask the question? In other words, if you know the answer to this, you would not be asking it. Well, they simply want to know, what gives Jesus the authority, the right to govern over areas that were reserved for them? They were the chief priests and the priests, the scribes, the elders. They were responsible for teaching the law, maintaining the temple, and ruling the people. To them, Jesus was just a dangerous interloper with no jurisdiction Jesus' ministry was a threat to them, as we've seen throughout the gospel, and they believed that it would cause a rebellion, leading the Romans to strip them of their power, their temple, and so on and so forth. So Jesus must be stopped. They recognized his immense popularity due to his teachings and his miracles, and they understood that it was diluting their influence over the people. 
However, as Vernon McGee remarks, their question was neither honest nor sincere. They were looking for just an excuse to discredit him at the very least and arrest him at the most with their main goal is to silence him at all costs. However, while coming to ask this question, Jesus knew their hearts. He was the one who had formed them, created them, put them in this time and place and put them in their position. He knew the motivation behind their question. Instead of answering their query, he asked them a question in return. Don't you always love that? Jesus seems to be the one, he's like the model for this. Someone who answers a question by asking a question. Notice how many times Jesus does that. So Jesus says, very simply, I'll answer your question if you can answer this one. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Was the baptism of John, was that from heaven or was that from man? Now, John was a very popular person. Thomas Schreiner writes that Jesus landed the authorities on the horns of a dilemma. Their purpose is to expose Jesus as a fraud before the people. But now the tables have been turned on them. And now their own authority is now under consideration. He goes on to write that they are uninterested in answering Jesus' question honestly and truthfully. Above all, they are politically motivated. They're almost like politicians who will never ask the question, right? They always divert. Thomas Schreiner goes on to say the leaders get together to consider the matter. But they are not interested in pursuing the truth. They are only concerned with losing their influence if they offer the wrong answer in the eyes of the crowd who is watching this interaction. Now, to understand why Jesus was asking this question, let's consider the scripture reading from earlier from Landon in Matthew's gospel. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus himself a miraculous birth, as well as since his parents were beyond the, the natural age of reproduction. Uh, G, uh, scripture tells us that John was the promised forerunner of the Messiah, the uh, Elijah that was spoken of in Malachi, who would come to prepare the way for the promised anointed one of Yahweh. So people were looking for that Elijah, knowing that once that Elijah come, then the Messiah should follow soon along. He preached a message of repentance, uh, baptizing those who did repent. He also strongly charged the religious leaders with hypocrisy and warned the people not to follow their example. I think if you go into Mark or maybe it's John that he gives a little bit more day-to-day uh, -day things of what they are and how they are to live their lives from soldiers to tax collectors and so on and so forth. He was warmly welcomed by the people as they flocked from all along the countryside to hear him preach and to be baptized. Many people believed in him and responded to his message. However, once he was accused or once he began to accuse Herod of sin for taking his brother's wife, he was arrested and as we know already, he was eventually beheaded for his strong conviction. With that in mind, what a sight it must have been as the religious leaders huddled together to consider the question and how to answer that question in which it would not cause the problem. Now, the people are probably saying, Jesus asked me, right? Jesus asked me. I know, I know, I know. But the leaders have to huddle together and say, 
How should we answer? Was, was John's baptism from God or was it just his own thing? Should be a quick answer. But here they are huddling together. Why? Because they do not want to cause a problem. The answer should have been simple as the crowd was anticipating their answer. And in verse 5 in Luke chapter 20, we read this. And they discussed it one another saying, now look at this, this is their mind. If we say he was from heaven, then Jesus will say, why did you not believe him? Now you're already seeing there's an indictment of themselves. They did not respond to John. They did not believe John. But if we say that he was from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they understood the immense popularity of John. So they answered that they did not know where he came from. So after all that huddling, the best they would come up with is, we don't know. We don't know. Could you imagine almost the breath just coming out of everyone like, What? You know, you and I have seen that. We've seen a, a political, maybe a debate, something going on. A good question is thrown out. The, 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 the candidate starts to answer, and you're like, what? What did he just say? In the end, they made a politically correct answer that didn't answer the question at all. But as every good question does, and I encourage you, this is where it's important for us Christians to learn how to ask Good questions to those who question us, a question our faith. But it exposes the foolishness of their heart. And that's why Jesus always answered a question with a, can a question. What really is behind the question they're asking? What is their worldview? What is it that they're thinking? They knew that John the Baptist was from God. They understood that. There was no denying that. But they have no interest in the things of Yahweh. Like their fathers before them, they ignore the evidence of God's prophet and also reject the Messiah. And then eventually we'll put him to death in just a few days. In verse 8, if you're following along with me in your Bible, Jesus simply responds, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, all right, I'm not going to tell you either. If you can't answer mine, I won't answer yours. Jesus had no interest in playing their games. He was not going to fall into their trap. His time was short, and he was not going to waste any more of his time trying to justify what was plain to the people who were flocking to him. Theologian Robert Stein plainly states, discussion with such biased and hostile people was worthless. Let me give that again because there's some wisdom there for us. Discussion with such biased and hostile people was worthless. You ever find those people that it's just not worth debating, worth arguing with? So Jesus just ended the conversation Jesus, as the word, the logos, and the wisdom of God, New Proverbs chapter 9 is here on the monitor. It says, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused. It just doesn't pay. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. They don't want to hear any words of wisdom. So it says, do not reprove a scoffer if he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Jesus considers them foolish and leaves them to their own ignorance. 
and rebellion. Now, if you remember here, Luke is writing his gospel. And I want to give you just a, re- a little bit of review. <coughs> Excuse me, real quickly. If you remember, Luke is writing his gospel to a man named Theophilus so that he may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught about Christ. Luke informs that he has sought out eyewitness testimony so that Luke may write an orderly account of his life and ministry of Jesus. He's trying to get things right so Theophilus can have some assurance. By the way, this is a good time. Again, I want to encourage you to come to ACC 945 as we're looking at insurance of faith. I want to encourage you. That's a great session. We're going to enjoy it over the next 10 weeks. So with that, Luke begins by recounting the angelic birth announcement of John the Baptist and Jesus. Both births, as I've said, are miraculous in that John's uh, parents were, were, well abor- were well above the age of reproduction while Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to a virgin, as we see in our Apostles' Creed and in Scripture. And right off the bat, Luke informs his readers that these two men are special and are appointed by God to advance the kingdom. He goes on to educate his readers that Jesus is not just a man, but he's divine. He's the very son of God. And after laying down that foundation in the first two chapters, he then proceeds to document the ministry of Jesus. He writes of the various demonstrations of Jesus' authority as he demonstrated that authority over the natural and supernatural world, calming the seas, turning water into wine, the supernatural world in which he's casting out demons. He's shown his authority over sickness, any type of illness, disease, and even death, as well as lifelong infirmities. The demons themselves were silenced as they proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God. They knew by what authority he was there doing these things. In Luke chapter 4, verse 36, Luke writes of his audience, and they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for his word possessed authority. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports about Jesus went out into every place in the surrounding region. So just like John the Baptist, people were flocking because he was a man with authority. He spoke as one with authority, not like a scribe that teaches things, but he spoke as one with authority. He spoke, he, he, he demonstrated that authority through his miracles. Jesus declared that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority over it and that he was greater than Solomon and greater than the temple. Elsewhere in scripture, we read that his authority was given to him by the Father. Look at John 3.35. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hands. In Matthew 28, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And one that's not up here is it says that, that they wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Because he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And then Matthew 28, 18 and Jesus says, all the authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. And then the next, Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So if we were to answer that question 
By what authority is Jesus doing these things? It's very simple. Words of Christ. My authority has been given to me by the Father. It's kind of funny. Uh, You know, every once in a while, we struggle with our parking here and things of that nature. And so every once in a while, I'll come out and there's people that are parking there. And I'll go out and say, hey, how are you doing? What's your name? What's going on? Uh, You know, it's private kind of property. We're trying to save our parking. I says, what? But I I, I have permission to park here. Well, who gave you permission? Well, Pastor Rob, everyone here in the area now knows my name. Oh, Pastor Rob uh, gave gave me permission. Or they'll use Matthew. Well, the Matthew, Matthew gave me permission. I'm like, well... I'm Pastor Rob, and I know Matthew wouldn't do that. So, oh, you, oh, oh okay. <laughs> so it's like, well, you know what? They, they try to, to assume something that they know is not correct. Word spreads around and say, well, just say Pastor Rob. So if anyone asks, that's how it's going to be. But, so sometimes it's funny, but yet in this case, we know the answer where Jesus' authority comes from. The ultimate authority. The one who is able to give Authority. The religious leaders, here's what's, this is what is exposing their question and their answer exposes this in their heart that they did not know the Father because if you know the Father, you know the Son. And if you don't recognize the Son, then what, what we're seeing there in that Matthew is you do not know the Father. So what it exposed in the chief priest and the scribes and the elders, the top men in Jewish, life, in Jewish uh, um, society did not know Yahweh. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Colossians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, the Apostle Paul writes that God has highly exalted Christ and has bestowed on Christ the name which is above every name. And that in him we have been made complete and that Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. See, you and I have to answer that question as well. And we should ask, who is Jesus? And by whose authority does he proclaim and declare and demand of us our obedience? Well, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether they're thrones, dominions, or rulers and authorities. That's talking about nations, that's talking about kings, that's talking about constitutions, so on and so forth. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and and that in everything he might be, could you say it with me? Preeminent. Number one, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. 
You see, Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He's not just a good example. He's not just a man who came and taught good things. But Jesus is the one who not only created all that you see, visible and invisible, including the natural and the supernatural world, but he is the one who grants political power. He sets up nations. He takes down nations. He raises up kings and presidents and so on and so forth and in the same way takes them down. Not only does he create, but he also maintains and sustains all which I just said above. It is only by his gracious hand that we exist. Their question of by what authority do you do these things is like a small child asking his father, why? Who are you? Why do I need to do this? Why do I need to do that? Not because they truly want to know, but because they desire to be in control. That Jesus had authority encompasses, as you and I are going to see, the doctrine of sovereignty. And I want us to get that as we're interpreting this passage. You'll see John Piper, there's a quote here on on um, on the monitor. When we say God's sovereign is sovereign, we mean that he is powerful and authoritative to the extent of him able to override all powers and all authorities. And just keep that up there just for a second. Is you and I need to understand that is that we are not in control. All authority, all power comes from him. God is sovereign over all things. There is no one that can say to God, who are you? Why are you doing this? Why do you demand demand this from us? God's sovereignty, though, also includes his providence. I like what John Piper calls, he calls it purposeful sovereignty. And I want to take us to the next quote here. Is purposeful sovereignty. He's not just authoritative and power just because he's the big, you know, big man. But there's a purpose behind what he does. And he says the providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. I I wish you could underline it. Take a picture of that of your phone or some type of thing because I think you need to get this. Is God will completely be successful in the achievement of that which is his ultimate goal for the whole universe. God's providence carries his plans into action. He guides all things towards his ultimate goal. And he leads it to the final consummation, which we know as the kingdom of God. Now, at first, this can be very difficult and overwhelming. But this purposeful sovereignty, if anything, at least write down that phrase is the source of all comfort that you and I need to endure the suffering and hostility of this world. So I say that because as Jesus rides in Jerusalem, as he weeps over the city, as he curses the the fig tree, though we're not going to see that in Luke, and cleanses the temple, as he's heading towards the cross, his purposeful sovereignty grants him authority to inspect those things and to teach and to preach 
of the kingdom. He has a purpose. Jesus himself declared that it was his purpose and the Father's plan to reconcile all things to himself. That included allowing himself to be tortured, mocked, ridiculed, and put up on that cross and die. So when they ask what authority does it do it, it was his purposeful sovereignty, even for them to come and ask the question so that he may expose the foolishness of their heart. But in the same way, as you and I are reading this, you and I must understand that we are the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders in this story. You and I are the ones that are asking Jesus by what authority. You say, no, 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 I, I trust Jesus. Well, let me ask you, do you ever struggle with the commands of Christ? When he says, love your wives, when she's unlovable, when, when the Bible says, submit to your husband, when he's uh, disrespectful and not loving, are those not times we say, by what authority? When he tells us to love our neighbor, but our neighbor is not taking care of his yard, do we not ask by what authority? When we're struggling with the commands to guard our hearts, to watch our what we watch, to do the commands of Christ, do we not ask by what authority? Is it not internally our own authority that's fighting with Jesus and saying, no, I want to go my own way? I think if we're honest, you know that there's times that we do. If not, we know as parents that our children are, just as we try to get them to stand up straight and just for a few songs, by what authority are you making me to do this as they're pushing and pulling and these things? Well, it's our job to share with them by what authority. God has a purpose in all things, in all of his scripture. The question for you today is do you accept the identity and the authority of Christ in your life today. And before you just put a blanket, yes, I want you to take a moment to test and see if that's true. What commands of Christ, in what ways do you struggle, do you fight following Christ? In what ways do you mentally or in your heart shake your fist at God and say, oh, I will not comply, I will not comply. Jesus, if, I should say, if Jesus is authoritative, if he is the son of God, God himself, then we must obey. Amen? And let me say that again. Let's give you some practice. If Jesus is authoritative, if he is the fullness of God, then we must obey. Thank you. He clearly says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? So in what ways are you struggling with that? As the only true authority, you and I are called to submit to him as our king. We are to listen to him as our prophet and we're to accept his sacrifice as our priest, his mediating action, I should say, in which he presents himself as our substitute sacrifice, as he prays for us, as he presents us to God and then 
shows us who God is. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 26. I know I'm speaking to the choir here for the most part this morning, but I, I think you need to get this. You know what? There is no Hebrews 26. Can you go to Hebrews chapter 10, please? If you're here this morning and you declare that Jesus is Lord, then you have no other alternative than to accept his Jesus or to accept his authority. You cannot say, well, I don't know. Where can I find what, the, what God says about my finances, about my marriage? Well, I don't know. I don't know if God has anything to say about it. We are to give reverence to his person, to whom he is, to obey his commands. The author of Hebrew warns us in Hebrews 10, I believe, so let's see if we're going to get this, verse 26. You can shout out if for some reason I'm giving you a different passage. He goes on to say, if we go on sinning, am I in the right place? Deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. So if we continue to disobey God after receiving the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that consume the adversaries. So what he's saying here is, is if you disobey God, you become an adversary in this regard. Anyone, it says here, and then he gives us a thought here. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without the mercy on the evidence or two or three witnesses. So what that means is here's the command of Moses, right? We think of the Ten Commands, but there was actually 613. And what he's saying here is if anyone transgressed against one of the commands, you were guilty of what? All of them. So it says if you, if you disobeyed one of the commandments, you didn't held it, then you were to die without mercy. And we see examples of that in the Pentateuch, right? Or even in Joshua's when we think of Achan. Uh, Achan. So he says, you, you, without mercy, you die. That's it. You're paying the price. But look at what he says. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who tramples underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So it's speaking of one who professes to be a Christian, but yet in their heart, there's no evidence, there's no fruit. For we have one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You ought to underline that passage right there, that, that phrase. For I pray that none of you, our elders pray that none of you fall into the hands of of a living God and his wrath and his vengeance. Our desire for any who is watching this, listening to this from any of the mediums, that you do not fall into the hands of the living God. That's our goal and desire for our children, grandchildren, for our friends, our family. So our warning has to be to them is you must submit and hear and listen and understand who the prophet, the priest, and the king is. That which makes, that who makes all things right. Who fixes what is broken and repairs that which has been torn apart. So first, you and I need to submit to him. 
And that means living out and obeying the commands of Christ. The, 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 the Pharisees, the religious leaders knew that. If we say that we believe that John was from heaven, but yet we didn't obey, they understood that connection. But I think there's a lot of people who profess Christ that, that think it's two different things. Why well, accept Jesus as my Savior? I don't really have to accept him as my Lord. I'll do that later. That's a deathbed type thing, right? I'll just do that when I'm almost dead or I'm hurt or sick or those moments where things are really tough. Maybe then I'll do that. We separate it. We cannot do that. The Bible warns us that your profession of faith may be disingenuous. It may be false. So that's the first application. The second one, and that's for our commitment to stand on the authority of Christ. And how do you and I stand on the authority of Christ? We stand because of Scripture. For in Scripture we find Christ. We live in an anchorless world that's drifting from one silly idea to another. Sometimes they're just silly and sometimes they're silly dangerous. Like Pontius Pilate, they cry out, what is truth? Disregarding that he's standing right in front of us. Paul writes in Timothy, you'll see it here on the monitor, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I may not have put that in there. Apologize. But here's the thing that you and I understand that this is why we have churches that are full of things in which they are not accepting of the authority of Christ, whether it comes to who is preaching to encourage to those who are serving. What does it mean to be a Christian? But the application is found in verse five. If you want to, we're almost there. So second Timothy chapter four, if you want to look at it later, I just read you three and four, but we're going to go to verse five is how do you and I then deal with this type of thing in our own life, in our own family, in our own marriages? It says, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of evangelists, and fulfill your ministry. You know, I don't know where God is leading Orangeville Bible Church. We're not one of those churches where people are flocking in and then staying. We're trying to be faithful to the word. I believe we are. We're open to if we are in failure in that in some form or fashion. But as Orange Villa Bible Church, we are standing on the authority of God's word. Because Christ is our foundation. And so with that, it's not enough just to say that we are. We need to live that out. The fact that we are in the time when people do not endure sound teaching, that should not surprise us. As we read the indictment from Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We live in a day and age as we have from, from, from the beginning of humanity, really from the fall, in which men suppress the truth of Scripture of God. Paul goes on to write that God's eternal power and divine power can be perceived, that no one has an excuse Humanity has neither uh, honored God nor given him any gratitude. 
In return, God has made our reason, speaking of humanity, our reason is futile. It has become hostile to the truths of God. Any wisdom that comes into competition with God is made foolish. We are guilty of exchanging the truth of God for the lies of Satan. However, knowing this, we as Christians are called to adopt the attitude of the Apostle Paul, who writes in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That should be our proclamation. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We stand in that word, the Greek, the Gentiles. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You and I need to marrow or stand and marinate in this truth. By what authority does we do these things? Are we meeting? By what authority am I raising my family in such a way? Because I stand in the authority of Christ. I will not be ashamed. Many times when people come and say, why are you doing these things? And instead of giving them a reason for the hope that lays within us, we're huddling around and say, well, how should we answer this question? So I don't get canceled, ridiculed, mocked, or put out of my friendship. Later, you can turn to 2 Peter. We don't have time to do that now as I planned. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, I'll summarize it. Peter says that we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We're not making this up as we go. We're standing on the things that are sure. We're standing on something that's greater than when we eyewitness Jesus being transfigured before us as Moses and Elijah joined us on that mountain. We have something even better than our own experiences. What does he have, he says? He says, Scripture. He says, because no Scripture has come from someone's own interpretation. It was never produced by the will of man. He says, men spoke from God. It is God breathed and they carried as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let me come and I want to give this as an application. When they're asking by what authority, Jesus, I'm not going to answer you. I'm exposing your hearts for you truly would not even recognize nor accept the answer I'm going to give to you. But you and I now live in that same wheelhouse, so to speak, in which people are going to ask us, by what authority are you preaching, teaching, living these things out? Today, people in the community, maybe family and friends, our coworkers, are going to ask, by what authority do we say these things? Let me give you an example. How do you know that there are only two genders? It's on a spectrum. There's 131 or 113. We respond with the authoritative words of Jesus Christ who says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female? When they come and say, why are you against same-sex marriage? We respond with the authoritative words of Christ who said a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. When the world and the culture comes at us, the law comes at us and says when we counsel our friends not to give up on their marriages and we warn them of the authoritative word of God, who says there are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. When the world comes in madness, promoting our children to mutilate themselves, we strongly reply with the authoritative word of Christ, who warned it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast in the sea than to see that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So the world comes and says, why do you do these things? What's wrong with sleeping together or being, you know, extramarital affairs and all sorts of things and drunkenness? What's wrong with these things? Let us just live and let live. Let everyone do what they want to do as long as it harms no one else, as if that's really true. That's a lie. You and I come back to the authoritative word of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. See, the world is asking the same questions as those religious leaders of God. Of whom we are representatives of. And they want to know what authority gives you the right to say that. To not use my pronouns to justify or affirm my lifestyle. You and I can only stand on the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. Time does not allow me to continue, for scripture contains everything. We could bring out these questions. But you and I need to understand that scripture contains everything that pertains to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who has called us according to his own glory and excellence. By the way, let me put this side note. When we're thinking of scripture, there is no difference. There is no discontinuity. That's not the word I wanted. Discontinuity. Ah, forget it. Between Jesus' words that are in red and the words of Peter, James, and John. It is all the word of God. And when you and I read the Old Testament, we don't unhitch ourselves from it. Them itself is the word of God. And so you and I must come to understand how they are profitable to teach us what is right, to teach us what is wrong, to reprove us when we are wrong, to correct our wrong thinking and wrong actions, and to train us how to live lives of godliness. Brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge and submit to Christ who has all authority. Probably the best thing you can do is take the example of Jesus. When someone says, by what authority do you do? You consider Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Not a contradiction, but great words. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But then also answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That itself is a month worth of Sundays of going out. But let us bring that to heart. Ask questions when people come back. But you and I stand on the full word and authority of Jesus Christ and his word. Amen.
Every head bowed, every eyes closed as the worship team makes its way up, as well as Randy for our closing prayer. Again, as we always ask, just take a moment to pause and to consider the words of Christ here and the effects it has and the authority of Christ and the encouragement that you and I should have when we have to face the same thing. What authority? Why do you believe these things? Why do you teach these things? Why are you acting this way? We should give the reason that, of the hope that's within us. And then would you pray and ask this Holy Spirit to help you to respond to however God may be calling you today to stand up against those who would challenge the authority of Christ. Randy? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.